All right, here we go. Rants with Justin and Joe. Joe. 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 to start now so um joe you ready you want to do the intro sure um in terms of well shoot let's just let's just jump into it so i think most of the people that are here have been here before uh but the the format is uh we just get together and talk about topics that are pertinent to behavior analysis and intervention for individuals diagnosed with autism uh, and then we just have an open and frank discussion about the issue. Uh, and this week's issue is Factor Fiction, Ivar Lovas and the UCLA Young Autism Project. And we're lucky enough to have uh, Dr. Ron Leaf with us here, who was an instrumental part of that project in the 1987 outcome study. And uh, I, I won't take away, I don't know if you had an introduction plan for him, given that you might know him a little bit better than I do. Yeah, I mean, he's offering me Sydney Wicks jerseys and some, <laughs> and some other dude I don't know. Uh, uh, Kurt, Curtis Rowe, he's right next to Wicks. Okay. Don't know uh, who Sydney Wicks is, but cool. Yeah. Uh, some uh, housekeeping things for uh, those watching live. Uh, obviously, welcome to Rants with Justin and Joe. But Chapter four. Chapter four, yeah, we're doing pretty well. To get your CEUs, of course, you have to do a code word. We're going to give you a pre-code word, and we're going to give you a post-code word, and you need to email it to jbl.par. Thank you, Joe. And the code to start is blue, like the color, B-L-U-E, blue. So we wanted to have, we wanted to talk about UCLA Young Autism Project and Ivar Lovas as Quite frequently, that comes up on social media. Quite frequently, at least I see, uh, that it is an area that's discussed and somewhat people talk about it in certain ways. And it seems that people really don't know what happened uh, at that project or what the ramifications were of that project. So there's a bunch of myths there. I think both Joe and Ron were, and Bob Ross, I'm name dropping, dropping Bob Ross, uh, or in a bar in New York where I couldn't talk in that bar uh, because I was just responding about what happened at the UCLA Young Autism Project and misconceptions that were going on in social media. So Joe and I thought no better way than to have someone who is instrumental at that project and having Ron come and tell us a little fact and fiction and some questions and his uh, perception of what happened there. So. Um, it's a pleasure to have you on Rants with Justin and Joe Ron uh, as, our, you. as a host. Um, why don't you just talk to us a little bit about uh, your role in the project and how you came along with it, besides going into that Tuesday, Thursday that you needed a class and <laughs> equally distance and, and talking about Aunt Karen. So why don't you, we skip over that part because that takes about a half an hour and just talk about your role on the project. Okay, I, I was, listen, I, I represent a small part of the project. The project really went on from the early 60s till the end of our era, the post era after us, which was the early 90s. I was there for 11 of those years. So I was there from 73 to 84. 
Um, I have lots of different roles on the project. I, I started as an undergraduate um, student on taking 178 from EVAR. Was lucky enough to get on the project. There were three projects at the time. I chose to be an action a hyperactivity project, not the autism project. And I did that for six months. I became an undergraduate teaching assistant with EVAR uh, for EVAR's class. I went to Southern Illinois because I didn't have the background to get into a PhD program. I was a political science major, not a psychology major. Um, EVAR suggests I go get a master's program. He strongly suggests I go to Southern Illinois University where I went. When I returned back, I did an internship um, at UCLA. I got into the graduate program. I served as a research assistant, graduate research assistant, as a graduate teaching assistant, um, as a research psychologist, as an interim director. So through the 11 years, I had many different roles, um, ending with being the interim director when he went on sabbatical, taught classes at UCLA as well, uh, was a lecturer. So I filled many different roles. Great. And so I think one thing in our conversations together about this, and I'm sure with Joe, is there was a certain atmosphere that was going on at the time that Ivar created and you and your colleagues created. Can you just describe what that was like back in the day before we have all the knowledge that we do about ABA and how it affects uh, individuals with autism? The atmosphere was, we were this team that was devoted to like defeating autism. Um, we were this very united team. We worked really closely together, graduate students, undergraduate students, and we were just passionate about the field. Um, we worked, you know, usually at least six days a week, if not seven days a week. We worked from early morning to late at night. It was not unusual to go on the project for Friday night or Saturday night, and we'd all be up there working. And we loved it, and we just thrived on that. And so we were a very close-knit group. And Ebar created that. Um, Ebar created that because he was really tough to work with. And he created, he created sort of a very you know, tense environment in many ways, and we came together to be united within that environment. So he was incredibly stimulating as a professor, um, as a mentor, but he was also challenging. And I think it was that challenging, that this challenging nature that created that. I think another thing that's just interesting about Ivar is he was trained in psycho, as a psychotherapist. Um, he was psychoanalytically trained. That was his orientation. And so he brought that to the project too. So it wasn't just a strict behavioral perspective. There was also an underlying um, perspective, more psychoanalytic perspective too. I think what I take from all of that is it's a if anybody was listening and jotting down each of those different points, it's almost like a formula for excellence. Uh, and because I feel like, and I'll let you speak to this, uh, that a lot of the things that were happening then aren't necessarily happening now. Or, or I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but do you think that we've been able to almost replicate that same thing um, in terms of the different places we are now with autism intervention? Well, I think you can replicate the atmosphere. I think you can do it from not creating a very stressful atmosphere. Um, so I don't think you necessarily need that component to it. But I think you can absolutely create a very strong team that is on the same mission into what we do. And again, I, I think that's 
something we try to do with the Autism Partners and Autism Partners Foundation is create a very strong team. And then I guess since since you uh, since you brought up Lovas and and how, and his big role in all of this, uh, I think one of the questions that I had for you is what do you what do you think when you hear the term the Lovas model, as it relates to you know the Young Autism yeah. Project? Listen, I reject I reject it totally because I don't know what model you're talking about. I can just talk about the, the part I was my generation, so I can talk pretty well about those eleven years I was with him. I know the generation before me from observation, but every generation is quite different. So I, there's not one model. I think Ivar would roll over his grave if he kept on hearing the Lovas model. I don't know what that is. I'm just not sure what it is. I know what our model is, um, but I don't know the other models. And they change constantly. In fact, the people that came after us, they changed the model. Um, and actually, in some ways, I think they regressed in the model for a number of reasons, but there's not one model. And in my 11 years, it wasn't the same. So in the beginning of my 11 years, we used physical punishment. It was a very big part of what we did, but we didn't do that toward the end of my years. So that was a change. We changed our perspective on parent, on parent support, that changed. So we were always changing and that was part of our model. And probably one of the myths I think that's out there is that the model, the Lovas model is this kind of rigid punitive model very protocol driven, and we were not that whatsoever. We had structure, um, and I think we had more structure you know, back then than when we do today in autism partnership, but we're, we weren't a protocol driven project whatsoever. We didn't have prompting protocols, we didn't have reinforcement protocols, um, we took data as necessary. So the myth oftentimes is about the rigidity and being protocol driven, and that was just not so. Ivar loved to say, be nimble, um, meaning always change. He talked about every child being their own experiment, and you change within that. So he was driven by the fact of that we're always changing in what we do. So, I mean, that's one myth that you were talking about that it's a really, that you were guys were really rigid back then. Why do you think that myth is around? Um, I, I think, you know, I can only speculate. And by the way, if you go back and you watch the film that they did in the 1960s, um, it's a wonderful film. And if you watch that, there was nothing rigid about the 60s either. You, you watch observational learning, you, look, you watch inclusion occurring, they're talking in just very normal talk. Um, there was nothing rigid in the 60s either. But what I think happened, and I'm pretty sure this part of it actually, is that when I was, towards the end of my, um, my years there, Ivar was gonna retire. He had no interest in continuing. He saw us as the last generation. Um, the project was done. We had the last child that went through and he was gonna go live in Idaho. He had his house in, in Idaho and he was gonna go live there and he wanted nothing more to do with autism. He just wanted to retire and ski. And so he was, he was ready to leave. Um, he had the last generation, he brought Tris in, an amazing human being, um, to really write up the, the project. John wrote some of it up, Tris came in as a graduate student and finished really writing it up. There was no plan of intervention. Then we get the wave of, of ASD coming in in the mid-90s, and he tools back up. Um, but Ivar didn't really wasn't really in terms of his part of our project, he really wasn't involved in the day-to-day -day aspects. 
He let the graduate students really run the project. He would observe from afar. He was mostly into disseminating information, giving lectures, writing. He was really not very aware of what we were doing. And that was fine. That's how he ran the project. That was his method. And so he didn't know the things we did in our generation. So you get that. Now we're, we leave. I leave. John leaves. And autism is becoming big again. So what he's left with is the me book. The me book was written prior to us getting there. It was the it was the generation, two generations really before us that was in print. And so he's got the me book. We're not there anymore. And so he goes back to the me book, which was kind of rigid um, and somewhat rule oriented. And that's what they followed was the me book. And, and I remember going to see Glenn Salas's project in Wisconsin. He was doing a replication. And I was watching what he was doing. It's like, Glenn, I, I'm not sure why are you doing 10 trials? And he said, because I noticed every time is 10 trials. And he said, well, that's what you did on the project. It's like, no, we didn't. We didn't do that on the project. We never did that. And why are you taking continuous data? And he said, well, that's what you did on the project. And his reference point was really the me book. Um, and so they were following this formula that was, from our sample, was outdated in the 70s. Um, I think that's what contributed to the rigidity. And then Ivar, the other part of it was Ivar later on starts talking in more rigid terms. And Ivar and I had ongoing correspondence about, about it. And I was like, I remember I have a letter from him. I wrote letters back and forth. And Ivar, we didn't do it that way. So for example, uh, uh, prompting protocols or the hours, by the way. I mean, the myth is that we did four, a minimum of 40 hours. We actually didn't do that. We did a range of hours that were from 18 about 60 with the, with the really, with the mean being about 25 to 30. Um, and it's like, Eva, why are you promoting that we did this when we didn't do that? And his comeback and his answer is his, was he didn't trust people. He didn't trust that people would do the right thing. So he'd rather err in saying 40 hours. He'd rather err in saying no, no prompt. He'd rather err in doing continuous data. That was why he did it because he didn't trust people. He said people typically, the leaders and the media followers are the best. Everyone out from that's not, not very good. So I'm not going to give them any room. I'm going to be black and white. And my argument back to him was, you know, I think there's as much harm in being black and white um, as being a little bit using clinical judgment. So again, I think so the myth of the project, the, the rigidity comes from the earlier generation, comes from the me book, and it comes from Ivar not trusting. Yeah, I think... <laughs> I think what goes along with that, Ron, is that there's this opinion that what we do today is so much better than what happened during your time in the project, and that we're much more sophisticated today. And I'm not talking like AP or APF, I'm talking about the field as a whole is much more sophisticated now today and better therapy today than back then. I just wonder what your thoughts are. Yeah, that. That, that, that's not my observation. I, you know, I, observe a lot of therapy out there, a lot in schools and my legal work and going to agencies. I think back in the 60s, they were more advanced than most I see today, back in the 60s. Um, certainly in terms of the 70s and 80s, I think we were more, so, so much more sophisticated than we see. Not that we haven't made evolutions, we have. And I think the field's made evolutions as well. But I think for the most part, most of therapy I see is we haven't evolved, we've evolved. 
And I, when I saw the replication studies, for example, I mean, it was like, it was nothing. I used to give Glenn nothing but a heartache and say, don't call it a replication study. You're not replicating what we did whatsoever. It may be an extension, it may be different, but it's certainly not a replication. Yeah, I, I think it, it makes a lot of sense, especially given that there's so many misconceptions. I'm, I'm glad that you're here to dispel some of those. And I think I had a list of things that I thought might be misconceptions, and I think you've hit the majority of them. You've hit the, the, the 40 hours, you've hit the punitive, the protocol-driven, the replication piece. I think some of the other things that people have um, discussed about this project or, or LOVAS in general is that it was only high-functioning kids. Uh, do you want to speak towards that at all? There, there's a few things I wanted to speak to what you said. Is it, we only have an hour on this. We only have an hour. In terms of high functioning, I, first of all, we were, I mean, Nezaboff said we hand selected clients. That was one of the criticisms. Um, Nezaboff and, and um, Charlotte. And, and just wasn't so. I mean, and be, by the way, they were horrible. If we picked who we thought would do well, we'd been completely wrong. Because back then we thought, if you asked us what's the best prognostic indicator, it would have been a, someone that's very passive, no behavior issues. Um, that's who we would have thought back then. And we saw over the years that was completely wrong. The, the kids that did the best were those kids that were most, most acting out, most behavior problems. And so if we tried to stack the deck, we just stacked it wrong, but that's not our protocol. We had to take whoever we, we had come in. And back then, again, remember, we're talking back in the 70s. High-function autism didn't exist. You wouldn't get the diagnosis. So we got classically you know, diagnosed kids, and we didn't do the diagnosis ourselves anyway. So the fact we had high-functioning kids with autism is just absurd. They, they just didn't exist back then. I wanted to cover two other things in terms of differences that you, you sort of alluded to. One is that one of the misses we just worked on language and, and behavior. Now we worked on speech and communi full communication, but we worked on social. Social was huge for us. Play was absolutely incredibly important. So we need to get our kids in kindergarten, in general education, and with typically developing kid, kids, and to get them that way, that, mean that meant they had to be social. So we devote a tremendous amount of time to social skills and observational learning. That was a very big part of what we did. Um, we left speech within a year, a year and a half, and just fine-tuned it. But it was all about social and play. I, just the hour thing, which I, I, I find kind of amusing, is that we never tracked hours, by the way. Never tracked. That wasn't what our protocol was. We just put as many hours as we had, thought were necessary. We never tracked it pretty major mistake that we didn't track hours. I'll never forget us sitting at the research room. And we're writing that up now. It's like, okay, how many hours did we do? And it's like, I don't know. And so we had many different ways to try to come up with the amount of hours that we did. We did guesstimation, you know, so we, the senior therapists and the clinic supervisors kind of guessed what we thought it was in retrospect. That was one way. Um, we then sent a survey to parents. How many hours do you think we put in? That was another way. And the way we came up with 40 as an average was Ebar said, I think it's like a full-time job. And a full-time job is 40 hours, so let's, let's say it's 40 hours. That's how we did 40 hours. There was nothing systematic about it whatsoever. The last conversation I had with Ebar, um, probably about six months before he passed, or a year before he passed away, was he called me out of the blue, and I hadn't spoken for years. Um, I didn't know how he got my phone number. And he said he wanted to go over the, the clients. 
and how many hours because he wanted to just be able to know what that was and note that down. We went through 10 of the clients that I worked with on the, out of the 19 and, and we went the hours and we agreed totally, you know, that, that two of the kids got 18 hours and one of the kids got 50 hours and, you know, we went through that. But the myth that it was 40 hours just is so away from the truth. Um, the other thing that I just got to you know, rant about for myself was, was the continuous data. I know it's a small part, but it drives me crazy people taking continuous data. And this is the reason why. I got my master's thesis at UCLA. It was the outcome study. Ivar gave me the outcome study. And so I'm doing the outcome study. So my whole master's is on the outcome study and the preliminary results of the outcome study, which has really looked wonderful, the outcome study and how good it was. I've got done, I'm done with my master's. Now I'm under my dissertation and it's gonna be the outcome study. And he came to me and said, Ron, I don't want you to do that as your dissertation. I've got a far more important study than that. What could be more important than the outcome study? He said, no, no, this is really important. He was so irritated that people were taking continuous data in Loas's name. He said, we've got to do this study. You're going to take sampling data and you're going to compare that to continuous data. That is going to be huge. And I was like, Ebert, no one's going to care. No, no, Ron, you've got to do it in Norwegian accent. Well, I had no choice in the matter. I had to do that study, which was never published. No one cared about. There's already data, by the way, showing that time sampling would yield similar results that, to continuous. But that's the study I did. Because John was a procrastinator. He got to take over my master's thesis, and he did the outcome study. So I'm a little bit tweaked about people using continuous data um, because that my study was all about that that no one cared about. I, I think people would probably care about that study today, given the, the dogma that, I mean, I still think people are all about continuous data, even if it's not informing any, any changes. Uh, well, it's right, just data for data's sake. Right, here's my dissertation. Justin got it for me as a present. So I've got the whole study about, you know, time sampling data right here. All right, so can people just reach out to you directly to get a copy of that, or how do you want to handle <laughs> I can't imagine anyone would want to read that in a million years. But my uh, master's thesis, the outcome study preliminary, that's, that was interesting. Yeah. Uh, I, there's been some questions that are starting to flow in now, so we're going to try to work those in. Uh, the first one's from, um, well, they sent them just to us, so I'll, I'll leave it anonymous. But it's specifically for you, Ron. How do you all handle the parents who want their kids in daycare or public school for socialization, uh, but the prereq skills are not yet developed. Is that asking currently how I handle that? I think so. You know, currently, for me, before a child goes to school, preschool or whatever, they need the prerequisite skills. I don't need them to fail um, in preschool. And so part of that to me is certainly social interest and working on those social skills. So I'm pretty clear with parents about the importance of them being successful and what it takes to do that. They don't need to have, have mastery over those skills, but they need to see, see some of those prerequisites. And it's sharing with them what our agenda is. And, and it, to me, social, again, is a quality of life issue, which to me is more important than some of the issue, other issues that people are targeting. But I need to have them see the roadmap. And for me, working with parents is sharing my roadmap and what my vision is. And I think my vision with parents' vision is very similar typically, but it's how do we get there and show them that path. 
Justin, you have anything you want to add? No, not to that one. Um, not to that one. I, I, I think another one that comes up though, Ron, is the use of punishment and the thoughts of punishment. And could you speak just about the punishment that was used back then and your thoughts on it and punishment used today and your thoughts on that? Sure. I mean, you, physical punishment was an integral part of what we did. Um, back before our generation, they used electric shock. And they used electric shock. Again, they were dealing with a very severe population, self, very profound self-injury. When it came to my generation, electric shock was no longer being used. I missed it by, I think, a few months using electric shock. And so we used then physical punishment. So we would spank children on their thigh with the presence of self-injury or self-stimulation. It went through Human Subjects Committee. It was part of our grant. It was something that we, we used. Um, and we used it really effectively. And it was really, I mean, we really spanked them hard. I mean, it was where your, your hand had to turn red. It was a coming with a loud yell. And that was just part of what our generation was. That's what we did. And we didn't think much about it. We followed that protocol and we were highly reinforced for using it because we would instantaneously get rid of those behaviors. I mean, typically with a child, it might take five at the most spanks in the course of a, a month and no longer we're dealing with self-stimulation. And it allowed us to provide tremendous reinforcement. We were really, we followed the protocol, we oversaw it as a clinic supervisor as I was. Um, I made sure people were doing it correctly and it wasn't done emotionally. They were put back quickly to reinforcement. Um, that's the way we used it. The reason we stopped using it had nothing to do with um, not being effective. It had nothing to do with lack of generalization. It generalized. It was effective. It just had to do it wasn't politically correct. And so we dro dropped the use of physical punishment. And, and we toned down the verbal punishment. We used punishment in other forms, though. Um, we provided you know, negative sti and aversive stimuli to behaviors that we didn't like. I remember I had one child that didn't like cheese, and we presented cheese when he engaged in self-stimulation. Um, which for him was a was an aversive stimulus, but we we had to be more creative in, in the use of, of of technique, and that's one thing I liked that we stopped punishment. It made us more creative. It made us could be more much more proactive in teaching replacement skills. We had to be more. We had to use reinforcement in a much more powerful way, so the absence of reinforcement became it became um, reduced behavior issues. So it, it created creativity, you know. I, I'm glad we stopped being punished because I don't think people did it right, correctly. I feel very comfortable that we did it correctly during our generation, but I've watched other people, as I watched previous generations, if you watch any of our films and use physical punishment, they did it really poorly. They were emotional how they used it. Um, and I, I fear other people using it wouldn't do it correctly. So I, I totally um, embrace people not using physical punishment because I don't think they do it correctly. And I think there's, I think we learned a lot by not using it. Do you think that that's led to just a, a blanket avoidance of punishment-based procedures in general? Like things, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about um, one of the first places I worked, I was told not to say no to the kids that I worked with. Just a blanket statement, just never say no. So I think that's crazy. I mean, I, I've been in places I've been so they say you can't use that word either. It's like, it's part of our vocabulary and I, I think it's absolutely necessary. Listen, I believe in natural consequences. 
I believe in, I, I, not, I don't believe in physical punishment, but I do believe in using punishment. I do believe in giving reprimands. I do believe in doing things that are punitive. I think it's really important. Um, and I, you know, maybe it's because how elderly I am. Um, so I go back to the good old days, but I, I watch parenting and there's not a use of proper effective technique. Um, listen, Justin and I coach baseball um, and just watching, you know, you know, people out there, coaches, not letting kids do anything they want and not having a bottom line. I mean, I'm really proud that our T-ball players didn't jump on each other when the ball was hit and they stayed in their zone and they followed, they, they, they were, you know, they were doing the right thing in T-ball. Um, so I, I'm a believer with kids of all ages or anyone that there's got to be natural consequences to the behavior. And I think we take away, you know, the, the reprimands, we take away, you know, extinction or timeouts. That makes no sense to me. So a question on punishment that came up from uh, audience members is, Ron, did you see any of the side effects of punishment that are identified in the literature since? I say this fully understanding and, and appreciating the evolution of interventions. No agenda, just curious. Yeah, no, I, I mean, you talk about side effects that the kids become very sad and upset or they become aggressive and we never saw either one of those side effects. Again, we were really had tremendous positives going on. So, you know, Ivar said for every time you use punishment, you've got to use a hundred reinforcers. And I think what happened was that when you, when you very clearly punish the self-stimulatory behavior or the self-injury, it stops instantaneously and allows you to develop strong, strong good behaviors, replacement behaviors. So I think the kids actually were incredibly satisfied and happy. Did they like being hit? No, I don't think they like being hit. But I think they really like what happened after that. Um, and Eva used to talk about when they used, we used electric shock how it was calming to kids in the long run because they, they're, all their intensive destructive behaviors just went away. So this negative side effects, no, we didn't see that. But I wanna go back to, I think it's because we did it incredibly tightly. We used tremendous reinforcement. We're incredibly nurturing to it. There's an article they wrote on Evar in the 60s from Look Magazine, and I think it was called a, uh, a poet with a cattle prod. And they talked about, yes, the use of averses, but how loving the students were, how positive the atmosphere was, how accepting they were of the kids. So I think when you put all that together, you're probably less likely to see those side effects. Um, and then there's a follow-up question, then I have a follow-up question to this. Um, so from another person who's watching, uh, to clarify, you don't use punishment as a last resort. So I'm wondering in terms of the project, when was punishment used? Because now the BACB code, which could be a whole nother rant that you want to get into, says that you shouldn't use punishment. Uh, you should only use punishment as a last resort. Yeah, I, that's certainly not the way we operated. Um, we certainly started, you know, we didn't introduce punishment right away to our kids because we had to develop powerful reinforcers. We developed ourselves as being social reinforcers. Um, we did those things, but we pretty quickly got into punishment. And, and I think we drew upon the literature back then that showed a titration effect. That if you go one level up every single level, you lose the power. You need a jump in levels to make it powerful. So I think because of the titration research, we just didn't follow that. 
we didn't, again, it wasn't the first thing we did. It wasn't hello, let's now we start punishment, but it was pretty quickly, it was pretty quickly in the mix. And again, we were heavily reinforced. Again, I, I don't remember any child I worked with where we had to do more than five. Um, we were done after that. And now it was all just all positive. So again, we were highly reinforced for using it that way. And so I think my prior, I'm not suggesting we go back to punishment. I'm not suggesting that in that form. But again, I want people to be clear why we stopped it. And just to clarify, you do believe in more mild punishers, such as saying no, removing tokens, loss of privilege. Absolutely. So we're not advocating electric shock or, or spanking because it's not done correctly, um, but you are advocating the use of milder punishers as part of treatment. Uh, yes. I, listen, I worked with a client this morning who, you know, they were out, they were, the mom and dad were out with brother and uh, two brothers, one of our being our clients, and he was just really cheeky. He wasn't listening at all. Um, and I said, listen, this is what I would do. I, you know, in, in the, if we didn't have COVID-19, I would go to the, I would go to a, an ice cream store. The three of you get the greatest ice creams in the world, and you don't get it for your son that was cheeky. You know, he just doesn't get it. He watches you enjoy the three ice cream cones, and he doesn't get that. And it's like, you know, does that say is that punitive? Yeah, it is. But I think he needs to turn and learn the lesson. When you're out in public, you can't run around. You can't run to the street. There's got to be a consequence for that. And just stopping him. It's not going to be enough. I curse stop and say it's going to hit, but there's got to be some kind of negative side effect from that. And to me, going to the mall, getting a hot fudge sundae and him not, to me, it's well worth it. And, and then another thing that has come up recently is that a behavioral intervention causes uh, symptoms of PTSD for individuals with autism because of the punishers or because of the treatment or whatever. I'm wondering, I don't really want you to speak about P, uh, all interventions. I guess, what were the long-term outcomes you saw for the clients of UCLA? Yeah. Um, the outcomes were good. The long-term outcomes were good from what we saw. Um, we didn't see that. And again, I think it, it depends upon how you do intervention. And for us, intervention was all about helping them with social skills, having meaningful friendships, working on stress management issues, coping strategies. I mean, it was an inclusive treatment. It wasn't just on one aspect. And so quality of life was absolutely essential for us. And I think if you do it from that kind of place, when it's a positive approach in the, in the grand scheme of things, it's comprehensive, we just didn't see that happening. And I think that, yeah, I think bad ABA produces that kind of out outcomes. It's about good ABA. I do want to talk about one of the negative ramifications that we did, however, because we did have a negative part to what we did or a bad outcome. And the bad outcome was how we work with parents. On the project, we made parents be absolute experts. They became an expert therapist and they were like amazing. They had to become amazing. One, one parent had to quit their job to become a full-time staff member. And they were so good that they end up training our staff. They were so good Then we went on breaks, they took over therapy and the kids did better. And we loved that because our parents were absolute experts. In retrospect or quick, we saw that wasn't such a good idea because parents stopped being mommy and daddy. Parents stopped, stopped being husband and wife. 
parents stopped being taking care of themselves. They became a full-time therapist and that doesn't work well. And so if I have any regret about what we did in the project, it was that because the outcomes, our kids did really well, but almost every parent ended up in divorce. Siblings end up in psychotherapy because we concentrated all our efforts on making the parent the expert. So that's my biggest regret. And towards the end of the project, when I was interim director, we started changing that. We started providing support to parents, but trying to define their roles as being mostly mom and dad. Today, to me, that's absolutely essential, that parents just shouldn't be doing therapy on their child. It's a different mindset. Therapists need to learn, lead with their brain. Parents need to learn with their heart. And that's what I want parents to do. So I want parents to be really knowledgeable, but I don't want to be therapists. So in terms of your question of outcomes, our outcomes with our kids are really good. Outcomes with our parents, not so much. Uh, a question just came in uh, with a follow-up on that that says, uh, given the negative outcome with parent outcomes in the study, uh, do you have any suggestions for a practitioner with kids, especially ones that have behavior issues or autism? So I think the question is about, uh, do you have any suggestions for practitioners who also have kids that might have behavior issues or an autism diagnosis? Yeah, I mean, be, be an effective parent, you know, all the strategies that parents need to do, but when it becomes more of an issue, have a look to a professional to do that. You know, I just, that shouldn't be your role. I don't want to be a therapist. I never want to be a therapist to my three boys. I want to be dad. You know, that's what I wanted to be. Uh, you know, the only crossover I had was being a baseball coach. And I, I actually sometimes regretted that because I had to be a coach and not a dad. But I didn't want to be a therapist to my kids. Um, it just was something I didn't want to do. And luckily, they didn't need it, but I wouldn't have done it. Um, and again, I, you just have to turn it over to other people. I, you know, it's just the same way. You don't do, if you're a physician, you don't operate in your kids. You know, you're knowledgeable, but you don't operate on them. To me, you don't do therapy on your kids. You're just knowledgeable what you do. I think Same that I throw in there, I'm a big advocate that I don't have siblings to do play dates with their, 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 their sibling with, with ASD. I want to be brother and sister, not to be a therapist. I want to preserve the role. I just want to be, be brother and sister. Yeah, I, I don't think people think about how it affects the relationships uh, as much anymore. They just look at it as additional training or additional therapy opportunities for the kid because they need to meet these hours or they're at home for so many hours. So I think that happens a, a lot more often than, than we'd probably prefer. And then there was another question about, uh, or uh, someone discussed, uh, you know, divorce rates with parents uh, of individuals with an autism diagnosis. And I think that's a, that's a very good point um, and, and a very important thing that our field should look at. But I think there's other ways that, um, and I think we need to remember, we're just behavior analysts or if you don't have training in things like uh, marriage or family counseling, uh, then that's probably outside of your scope and you should look somewhere else. Ron, do you have any suggestions as to how you should address things like that in the course of therapy? Yeah, first of all, I'm not a, B, I'm not a BCBA. <laughs> I'm probably not one. Um, or an RBT. I'm a, I'm a licensed therapist, psychologist. So I, I do have the skills to do therapy. I was trained in that. Um, and I, I've loved some of my work with parents and doing therapy with them or doing couples counseling. But I'm trained in that and I've got experience in that. But when I'm seeing clients autism partnership, I don't do that because that's not my role. 
So I refer to people to do that role. Um, so I think you have to have a bank of people that are therapists, trained as a therapist, and understand autism. I'm very lucky. I've got two people that I refer to in my practice. Uh, one happens to be my wife, and one happens to be a, someone I've worked with for over 30 years. And I can refer them to those people when there's marital issues, when there's just stress and grieving going on. It's something that you have to be equipped to do and trained how to do it. And it's a training, and it, it's sophisticated. And so I, I highly recommend that people get a referral source of those people that really can deal with those issues and, and, and don't do it. Even if you're a trained therapist, you've got what your role is. My role is not to do therapy with my families. My role is to refer them when they need therapy. From that, I have a, we, we in our family play like a what if kind of game. So I'm wondering what would, two part question, what would Lovas be proud of today in terms of the field of ABA? And what would he be upset with today in terms of the field of ABA? Um, Ivar was most proud of the teams he created. What he loved the most was his graduate students that went on and changed, tried to change the world of autism. That was his proudest thing. He, he wasn't, you know, he loved what he, outcomes he had with the kids, but he's more, he's more pleased about the professionals he produced. And I think that he'd be very pleased to see, you know, my children and my grandchildren professionally. You might be happy seeing my children, grandchildren personally too, um, but professionally, that was his favorite thing is producing, uh, producing leaders in the field. That's what he'd be most proud of. And if you look at the people he produced, he's produced amazing people. You know, Laura, Laura Shrive, Bob Cagle, Buddy Newsome, just some amazing people, Dennis Russo, and the list goes on and on of the people that he produced. I think that's what he's most pleased about. And to be pleased that those people were innovative. Those people weren't protocol driven. Those people uh, had a heart. He'd be pleased about that as well. What he'd be most displeased about is the protocol driven nature of what we do. Even though that's what he ended up promoting towards the end, he did it reluctantly. And I think that's the thing that would bother him the most is how backwards people have become within the ABA field. It's why he didn't like credentialing whatsoever. Um, one of the last videos I saw him produce was talking about, you know, credentialing and how, how horrible he thought that was and how it was ruining children's and families' lives. I think he'd be most upset about that. That's, I, Justin, I think that that was a, a great, great question. And I think it allows an opportunity to even point out some more of those misconceptions. Uh, I think what, what I have a question about is, uh, other than this webinar, uh, if people wanted to read about these misconceptions or find that it is, is this information anywhere else? Because most of the time when I see people on Facebook, they just throw up the 87 study and talk about that or the Lovas model, whatever that is. So yeah. do you have any resources for? Well, we wrote a, we wrote a, in a, a chapter and it had to be said, um, which was chapter two, was about the myths of the autism project. See, I've got my books right here. Um, <laughs> And then there's a book we wrote recently. I don't know if I can find it on my shelf. There's a chapter. Um, it was about different approaches to autism. And we talked about the differences of that too. Um, and clinical judgment. So there's three resources we've talked about the autism project and the myths of the autism project. So that's what I'd, I'd recommend. It's here. This is the other book. 
It's called Conference of Models of Autism Spectrum Disorders. Um, Ray Romanchuk and, and uh, John McCaffin are the editors of the book, and there's a chapter of the Autism Project in there. And then we've got Clinical Judgment, um, which also talks about it. I, I just want one more thing I got to throw in there because I'm going to go to sleep. So I should have said that. Ivar went as a graduate student. He did not want me to take classes in applied behavior analysis or anything to do with that. He said, listen, I can teach you that. I want you to take classes in, I want you to be able to interpret a Rorschach. I want you to take um, class, I want you to learn how to do psychotherapy and, and psychoanalytic therapy. I want you to become well-grounded in psychology. I don't want you to become just in, in applied behavior analysis. Become a well-rounded psychologist. Be able to do therapy. And that was the requirement he had of every graduate student. So we got really very little. We didn't take many classes within that. We took what we had to take, but my favorite classes had to do with psychotherapy and how to, and, and all those issues so that we, would we could do therapy with folks. And he was a gifted therapist. He was like an amazing, talented psychotherapist. So Rod, you say where Ivar would be annoyed with and the stuff he would be proud of. And you now, whether you like it or not, are part of an, an old, the older generation, right? I should have dyed my beard. Yeah, or, or shave it. It would look better. No, uh, no. It's, it's not the only one that I guess is, doesn't have a beard uh, growing. Um, but in the leaf, but, you mean? Yeah, in, well, on, on this panel, on okay. the panelists. Um, we have some in this in this talk, we have some future leaders or current even leaders of the field, people like Melissa Saunders, Missy Olive, Steve Foreman are in here. How would you suggest teaching them, myself and Joe, uh, how to shape the field back to uh, the place that Ivar would want that, how to shape uh, the field back to not being protocol driven, to being clinically sensitive to children? What, what advice would you give us on how to carry on that, that great legacy. Does Bob Ross count as my generation or is he your generation? Bob Ross is in the older generation right now. So I'm talking about the- Not my age, I get it, but you know, okay, he's, he's a little bit older. Okay. Um, I, you know, that's a great question. I, I'm, I mean, I think it's learning not to be protocol driven, be innovative, try different things within your skill set, explore and probe. Take data, by the way, not necessarily continuous data, but take data to increase your skill set. Learn about other things. Learn if you've only been trained with an applied behavior analysis. Read some other things, other fields of psychology. I think that would be helpful. Always be questioning why are we doing what we're doing. Just don't accept the norm. Don't accept that there's four functions of behavior, for God's sakes. Why is there only four functions? And, and, and be innovative. Uh, my favorite book was Clinical Judgment, the books I, we wrote. And, and I like Clinical Judgment because we went back and we did the history of our field. And we saw as we, I went back and we looked at all the history, you know, most of the people that were our pioneers, our, our godmothers and our godfathers, they were innovative. They were creative. They, there was no limits to what they did. They tried different things. They were all well-grounded, by the way, in psychology too. And they came from other fields of, within psychology but they're creative and innovative. They, they, they tested the system. And to me, one of the, probably the one thing that's 
come true is I've become Ivar in many ways. I mean, I, that was, I thought I'd never be like him in some ways, but he was outspoken. He, he went after things and I've become that more and more in my writings and my talks. And I, I think that he was right in that. And, you know, maybe we both go a little overboard in that, but at the end of the day, don't accept the, don't expect, accept the system. Just don't do that. You know, because some organization says these are the rules are those, does those, do those make sense? And, and sometimes they don't. And, and by the way, that's not only in autism. I, I mean, I did a lot of work for years in other disabilities as well, in adult residential, and there's things that I just violated the guidelines, the state guidelines, because they weren't in the best interest of the client. And Ivar taught me, do what's in the best interest of the clients. If people are telling you don't do it that way, fight it. And I, I think we have to fight the system too. So. You know, I think there's some nice aspects to what's happened in terms of credentialing. There's some positives to that, but it's a, there's some problems with that system. And let's keep on working and fighting that. To me, I mean, the model, the progressive model, the, the APF model, I think that's really critical in changing children's lives. And I think we need to really embrace that and work towards that and improve upon that. Do you think that part of it is from like back then people were more problem oriented? Um, so they, they had this problem and then they just went to behavior analysis to solve it as opposed to today they have this problem and then they go and try to find in either the research or somewhere else where that problem has also exists and just take what was done there and just apply it to the situation even if it doesn't necessarily apply. I think back then, if you go well before my generation, they didn't go to the research, they just tried things. Mm -hmm. They just tried it. You know, I, um, I love that kind of mindset of trying this. Ted Ione was just like, just give it a try. You know, he didn't go to research. He, you know, he's working with a really severe population that, that had mental illness and he just tried something and then saw if it worked, never worked, kept on going with it. Then it didn't, he altered it. And with time, he tried to look at okay was there some research that might support what he was doing but it was just trying things being innovative creative and not being put limits on yourselves you know where clinical judgment came from the book i was gonna i was going and i say in the first chapter i was gonna talk in for CAS, and it was a talk about you know parent of staff training and i said we we're trying something new in our staff training and what we were doing is we 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 were starting to figure like, using monetary incentives didn't make sense. It wasn't creating the culture we wanted. So instead of using monetary incentives, we used professional incentives instead. And I presented this and I said, listen, we're just trying this, just probing it. And this gentleman raised his hand and in the back and he's been in the field for a long time. He said, you can't do that, Ron. Why? Because there's no research to support you doing you know, professional incentives. You've got to stick with the research. And I thought that, I thought, that's crazy. Yeah, we got to do research on it. I get that. But we've got to be, we've got to have the freedom to try things and, and again, take data on those things and be innovative. I don't know how else you do it. You know, John McCacken says that we followed that logic, the, the Wright brothers would, should never have, you know, invented the plane, built the plane. We've got to have, we've got to have that freedom. Again, I'm not suggesting we don't take data. I'm not suggesting we don't take research. I'm suggesting being innovative and trying things and not just following with the establishment. I think too much what's happened to people is the emperor has no clothes. 
people just blindly follow what's going on because someone may be powerful. And they just follow it. It's like, why? Don't do that. You know, you know, unfortunately, I think that's what's happening politically too much these days. Just as a aside. That's a whole nother rant. That is a whole other rant. So we're running up towards towards that hour mark, and I want to make sure that you've covered everything of misconceptions that you want to cover before we end the talk, and then you say, oops, I should have uh, said that. Um, I got a list here of things. That I think I covered pretty much everything I want to say. I, I guess the last thing I just want to comment is that it's often the, the project has been criticized over the years because it's not it hasn't been replicated. And it's never going to be replicated. It should never be replicated because unless we go back to physical punishment, it can't be replicated. It can't be replicated because it would meant, meant parents need to become therapists and who would want to do that? So it's not surprising when you see those, you, you're not going to see replication because there's no way you can really do replication these days. And so I just want to throw that out, out there. Well, thank you very much for being in term and coming for rants with Justin and Joe today. I think it was very informative uh, for the audience members and I hope they liked it. Uh, before we just end, and I like to keep people here, um, that we will be having another rants with Justin and Joe in two weeks. Uh, we're working on getting a, a guest again and we're just waiting back to hear from her. And we will let you guys know how we proceed in the next couple of days and post that for everybody. So look for uh, Rants for Justin and Joe in two weeks. Also, as you know, uh, I would like to thank everyone who has donated uh, for coming today. Uh, this is a, a pay for value kind of talk with no expectation of donations. But those of you that have donated uh, really helped the cause of Autism Partnership Foundation and the stuff that we're able to do, like uh, the free RBT training with Joe, how many people is that to now? Uh, 60, uh, over 68,000 now. Over 68,000. Joe and I are working on an eight hour training uh, for supervisors so they can go ahead and supervise others. And we do a ton of research. So all the donations really do help uh, the mission of helping uh, individuals with autism and their families. So if you donate, thank you. If you haven't, please consider, uh, but obviously no pressure to do so. We just thank everybody for coming up and learning this information. And before I give out the code, I wanna say happy birthday to Steve Foreman. I know it's a day late, but uh, happy birthday to you yesterday. And it was good to see so many people here at Rants with Justin and Joe. Joe. And the code word for closing is gold. Gold. Blue and gold, I get it. Smart man. Mm -hmm. Well, that concludes the fourth episode of Rants with Justin and Joe. Thank you, Ron. Thank you, Ron. Thanks for having me.